0: Welcome to Episode 173 with my guest, Julian F. This episode is sponsored by PillPack, the pharmacy that delivers convenient, pre-sorted medications right to your door. You can support the podcast just by checking out their website, PillPack.com slash happy hour. It might be the first pharmacy you actually like using, and the first month is free when you visit PillPack.com slash happy hour. This is the Mental Illness uh, Happy Hour. Oh, first of all, my name is Paul Gilmartin. We can't go. We can't go anywhere without you getting that vital piece of information. Otherwise, what would be the point of listening to this? I'm hating this riff that I'm going on because it really isn't leading anywhere and I'm just talking in the hopes that I will find a cul-de-sac for it to end in, but I haven't found one yet. So let's just enjoy the silence. That's my air conditioning let's enjoy the silence of my favorite thing when i was doing stand-up it would be when i would be performing in a club that served food and i would do a joke and all you would hear would just be forks touching plates <laughs> oh that is awful some awful some moments yeah anyway this is the mental illness happy hour Two hours of honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a doctor. I'm just a hypochondriac trying to find his way in the world. This is not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Mentalpod is also the Twitter uh, handle you can follow me at and um yeah go check out the website fill out a survey join the forum read a blog um support the show blah 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 let's get to some surveys uh oh by the way thank you to um the people at Cal Mesa, which is the uh, California Metal uh Mental Health uh Services Authority and um they hired me to MC a rally and parade uh, for uh, Mental Health Matters Day up in Sacramento a couple of days ago, and uh, I was just really, really touched to see that lawmakers are starting to see that um, this is an, an issue that really needs funding and attention and destigmatization. Uh, I especially enjoyed my drive up to Sacramento when I was like, "Boy, I should be, I should be entering the Sacramento city limits any moment now." And I saw that I was entering the San Francisco city limits. Yeah, apparently Paul wasn't paying attention (laughs) to the road signs. Oh, I don't like to go directly to a city. I like to just kind of nibble away at the edges and uh, work my way in. And nibbling away at the edges will be something that you will hear about later in this podcast. That was like foreshadowing. Let's get to some surveys. You know I love me some struggle in a sentence. This one is filled out by a guy who calls himself DC about his anxiety, like liquid electricity that carries urgent, threatening messages that I cannot decipher, about his alcoholism and drug addiction, like a light that turns on and off and controls my safety, but I'm blind and can't tell if it's turning on and off. About living with an abuser, uh, who was his mom when he was was a teenager. Like, I'm constantly trying to convince myself that this is actually abuse, but I never can quite get there. I relate very much to that one. This is filled up by Manda, who is um, a teenager, about her depression. Uh, I want to die, but that means I'd have to get out of bed. Um, Anxiety. Stop asking me why I'm shaking. It makes me shake more and being a sex crime victim praying to a god that i don't believe in that my abuser doesn't die before i can show him i'm the one who overcame his sickness that that is so deep and profound manda um i say it all the time but i swear to god the best uh struggle in the sentences are written by uh, teenage girls on this show and um and i'm really happy to have teenagers listen to this, uh, to this podcast. Um, cause I have a fear that I'm old and out of touch and it just, um, I don't know. just makes my, my day. I hate to see that they're going through things and they're struggling, but, um, I don't know. This is... Filled out by a woman who calls herself Jay. About her depression. Uh, and she is in her 30s. Uh, a heavy blanket that muffles everything and feels like a familiar place that I hate but know too well. Oh my God, do I relate to that. About her anxiety. Always present and measurable by how hard it is to breathe or think. About her anorexia. This is my punishment when I hate myself and a way to take control when life is too much. About being codependent. Dude. Dude. My seven-year marriage to a disabled vet, chronic pain sufferer. He needs me, and I want his approval so bad. So, so bad. Tell me that I am good enough. About being a sex crime victim. I was molested at 12. My molester was murdered when I was 28. I still don't know how to feel about it. Uh, About living with an abuser. I live with someone who is verbally abusive, but I make excuses for him all the time because of his chronic pain and because I'm such a fuck-up in our relationship. About anger issues, I wish I could blow up and explode like my husband does. I shut down and become paralyzed and pray that a drunk driver would hit and kill me on the interstate. Uh, I wish I could absorb my husband's pain. I wish I could save my students from the terrible home lives they have. I would sacrifice myself for them if it would make a difference. Uh, snapshot from your life, I am an amazing teacher that is a great coworker and fun to be around. I go home at night and turn into the miserable person I've known my whole life. My job and role as a teacher is my saving grace, oh, sending you a big hug. Uh, this was filled out by a woman who calls herself Aspen 30, and she is in her 40s. Um, I'm going to suggest you change your name to Aspen 40, because those of us with the OCD find that really disconcerting. Uh, about her depression. My major depression makes me feel like the boy in the bubble except the bad germs are trapped inside with me and I can't get to fresh air. About our anxiety. Anxiety feels like passing a grape through, through the vas deferens. I mean, I think it does. For those of you that don't know, that is the, uh, I believe that is the tube in the penis that carries the sperm. Um, uh, also known as the, um, the bullet train. <laughs> I don't know that's all I could come up with. Oh, about her alcoholism. My alcoholism abducts my sense of self-preservation and tells me poison is good for me. Snapshot from her life. Without a lot of background, this might seem like a strange example, but I guess you can twirl your handlebar mustache and go fuck yourself if you don't like it. Smiley emoticon. For the past three years, I've been having an affair. Both myself and the other fella are married. Um, I guess it would be both myself and the fella, since she is uh, female. Uh, which helps add to the horror that is my life. Last fall, I was with him at his house during our lunch hour. Someone knocked on the door, and I tore out the back door faster than an overweight woman my age should be able to. I hid in garages and alleys until I could circle my way back to the office. Turns out it was the UPS man. I wonder what I must have looked like. Wild-eyed and panting, running down the road. Not much like the mom of three and career woman I'm supposed to be. You would think this would have ended it, seeing as the fear, self-loathing, and panic were epic. The testament to my struggles lies in the fact that it did not end. I continue to see this person and continue to wonder every day why I don't just run in front of a truck next time. Every day I can't stop as another day I risk my life. Well, I'm sending you some love. And encouraging you to go talk to a therapist um, or a social worker or join a support group about, um, you know, maybe about love addiction or sex addiction or something. Something's going on deep, deep underneath there. And you're not a bad person. It sounds like you just are experiencing overwhelming feelings um, that you don't have the tools yet to help you cope. Um, do Do you guys get tired of me saying that? I hope not. But I feel like I have to say it. This is uh, filled out by a uh, teenage girl who calls herself Raisa. And about her um, sexuality, she writes, I think I'm the most horrible person in the world because of my feeling of attraction to kids. Uh, About her self-harm, I need to know if I'm still part of the world. Uh, I don't feel any pain, but I see the blood, so I must be alive. Um, snapshot from her life. I want to do something, but I can't. I don't feel anything and every day is boring. So I spend hours throwing a ball against a wall and wishing I could get out of my life. I encourage you to go, go talk to someone and just remember your thoughts and your feelings are, don't define who you are. We all have crazy thoughts and feelings that make us un- uncomfortable. So you're not alone in that. Um, And this last one is by a guy who calls himself Dre gone and he's in his thirties about his anxiety feels like an unwanted passenger who hitched a ride and refuses to leave about his OCD feels like having OCD about having OCD about having OCD and a snapshot from his life. I can be in a room full of people I love and trust and start wondering where the people are that I love and trust. Oh God, I wish I didn't need to take meds. like an animal. It makes me so mad at myself that I do that. The burden of perfectionism. And that's when I got into therapy. Let's talk about that. So I was like,
1: fuck it, I'm alive. I don't give a shit about anything.
0: You are a shining example of what is best about human beings.
1: I'm worried that the uh, Russian militia is coming over the hill. I know that, uh, but uh, Alice, how you feeling? I'm pretty good. Pretty
0: good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here with Julian. Who uh, is a listener that contacted me. You live in uh, Paris, but you're here visiting your your girlfriend. Yeah, yeah. I was actually at
1: South by Southwest. And then um, I, I really liked L.A. The last time I came, I hadn't really been since I was very young. And uh, I had all these preconceptions, but I really love it. And so I'm here for like 10 days, something like
0: that. It's also hard not to love L.A. when you're here in the winter and it's 85 degrees.
1: Yeah, Paris is not... The same weather. I mean, it just started to be spring, but we had a long, gray, rainy,
0: shitty period. What citizenship do you have?
1: Um, Swiss is my passport. um, And that's because my dad is, he grew up in Switzerland. And so he, uh, we kind of all decided to just go with his passport since it was a kind of it's a pretty versatile passport, and my mom, the alternative, I think, would have been my mom's British passport, mm-hmm. even though she grew up in South America.
0: And list the countries you were raised in as a child.
1: Oh, wow. Uh, well, in order. Um, I was born in Uruguay, and then six months later, I left, and I, th- I mean, I honestly, like, it's hard to even know, but I was in Brazil after that for about a year, I think, and then we moved to Switzerland, then France for two years in the south of France, then from France, we moved to New Jersey. We lived there for a couple of years.
0: That's an adjustment, the south of France to New <laughs> Jersey.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was. It was very exciting. Like I was, okay. I, I mean, my, I feel like my memories were so bright because suddenly I was like, uh, American candy existed and trading cards and like TV. And I was just like, whoa, this is fucking awesome you know like france was really not the same It was very drab compared but yeah so new jersey and then um we moved from there back to france and then we lived in france for quite a bit like near paris for like six or seven years and we moved kind of every two years because why not like if you're going to stay in the same country why not disorient us (laughs) within that kind of possible stability and then um My last five years before I graduated high school were two in Venezuela in Caracas, which was where we'd been visiting my grandparents anyways, and then three in Sao Paulo in Brazil, and then I graduated. So clearly your father
0: is a drug smuggler. (laughs)
1: Yeah. He's like a legal smuggler of um, aluminum packaging and... uh, (laughs) Yeah, that kind of stuff. Like he's he's business, but he he speaks a lot of languages. Uh, so they kept moving him around to do kind of like new markets and stuff. Yeah, and my mom followed for a while. And then what happened? What, you mean like when she when the following stopped? <laughs> it kind of didn't. I don't think it stopped until really recently. Actually, they they settled down in in Paris. Um, now they're not in Paris anymore, but they settled down for like the longest stretch I've, I've ever known, uh, and. My dad's career kind of started disintegrating, not disintegrating, but just kind of petering downward perhaps. Mm-hmm. And then my mom, um, hers really started picking up, so now he followed her for the first time to Switzerland, which is an
0: interesting development. So now they live there. So where would be a good place to to start with with your story with um do you want to give me some seminal moments from from childhood? Sure, yeah, it's funny. I was like kind of um
1: I've been really busy but I I, I was going over this stuff today and the first note I made was um, my first memories are all like really sexual actually like it just uh, kind of I I mean I consider myself heterosexual but all my first experiences were uh, homosexual experiences with my friends. And some of them were like, both of us, we wanted to do it. And others were like me kind of being like, come on, come on, you know. And so, it's only actually recently listening to the podcast that I've even been like, "What? Well, what's the nature of that? Like, how much responsibility do I have in that? And, but yeah, it was like a lot of, I don't know why, but I was really sexual, really young, you know. And um, and were they close to your age? Yeah, they were all okay. my age, all mm-hmm. like close friends and we'd have sleepovers <laughs> And, and, um, yeah, I think that I can't remember who, which one, like which one of my friends was the first, I remember I had one friend where we were both particularly enthusiastic about it mm-hmm. and, uh, we just like, we were both kind of like, we found porn and we'd look at like naked ladies and stuff back when you had to like kind of cut them out and you know, put them, like, <laughs> there was no internet yet. Um, and we were both like into that. I don't feel like there was anything pressuring or weird there. I don't think there was like much guilt there, but then I I there's another friend in particular who was kind of like So, we was just looking at
0: pornography together?
1: No. No, oh, no, no. Okay. We we were like we were fucking, you know? Like oh, we were okay. doing all kinds of stuff which uh I remember actually one of my first memories, probably something that like stuck with me for a long time, um and that I'm just starting to write about uh is I remember having orgasms before I could like ejaculate, before I could produce sperm. And I I mean the mechanics of it are totally different than once you've gone through puberty because I remember being able to just have multiple orgasms, like just come and then come right afterwards and there was no kind of you know,
0: and so I'm we just so glad I didn't discover that as a kid.
1: <laughs> I know. I mean maybe I can blame my later addictions on it. I other than the genetics of my family, which were really apparent,
0: uh, so I mean, the the, the first thing that strikes me is, you know, uh, two kids fucking. Um, mm-hmm. It it seems so uh, rare that that would happen if if one of those children hadn't been sexualized or something hadn't happened but you don't remember anything you know honestly like yeah i i've
1: i've done a lot of therapy um all my writing is about getting to the super bottom line of things and maybe there's something that's just really escaping me but um man i don't think so you know like i don't have like one memory that's like vaguely sexual of like um a kind of nanny when i was in the bathtub like She was washing me and her hand passed over my genitals once Mm -hmm. and that was like it, you know, Um, and feeling a bit weird about that, but then not, and then it just kind of passed. But other than that, like, I don't think so. I mean, and it's funny because with this kid, the one where we were both kind of enthusiastic about it, I don't know. I think we were both just into it, you know? And and how old were you? Man, I was in France. I must have been...
0: You were two. No. <laughs> they're, very pro- they're very progressive in yeah. France.
1: Absolutely, yeah, 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 You guys were
0: watching an international film festival.
1: <laughs> well, first of all, it's Europe. So, <laughs> in Europe, we do things a little differently, <laughs> a little earlier. <laughs> we were smoking cigarettes and fucking it, too. Sure.
0: <laughs> and eating heavy French food.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cream. Lots of cream. No, I, I think, I mean... Okay, let me just do some minor calculations. If, if it was France, it must have been... Um, after new Jer- after new jersey so i must have been like 8 or 9 kind of thing mm-hmm. yeah something like that yeah but uh yeah like we i don't i really can't think of anything like and i've 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 really questioned this you
0: know but what's the the impetus to fuck um because you had seen it in the pornography or was it something that you was just like let's let's do this.
1: Well I remember in New Jersey, which is clearly before France, now that I'm thinking about it, because I'm pretty bad with chronology, but I remember in New Jersey we had this game uh called Butt Touching with a few friends and I remember being really into that. Pat and that- S- Pat Sajak hosts that, doesn't <laughs> he? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh no, it's definitely like daytime television. <laughs> um yeah, I was just re- like it was just a game where basically we would pull down each other's pants not by force but like one person would choose to be the person with the pants down and we would just touch the flat the the butt and mm-hmm. it was just like there was no i don't remember like any anything beyond that you know but i i do oh may you know you know what might have something to do with it is like really early um the reason it, it connects is because for like i had this kind of thing of holding going into the bathroom mm-hmm. like i would it was like this form of kind of now looking back, control, like t- to be able to control something, you know, because of the environment um, that I was kind of being raised in. I was so uncomfortable and, and like I needed some form of control and that was like a great physical way to control. I would just like squirm and c- just not do it, you know, and it gave me this kind of pleasure and I think that pleasure was somewhat sexual. Um, mm. it, yeah, it's somewhat connected for sure, you know, this kind of like, I don't know, but I I just feel like I just kind of had just was like a little pervert from like as as early as I could think back you know I just like anything like that I was like oh what's that you know like I I don't remember my parents being particularly sexual or or like they were kind of prude about that stuff like to this day you know they're very prude about that stuff um and I I I walked in on them I think once having sex that was way later when I was like a teenager already and it was very like embarrassing Mm -hmm. but um yeah no it's weird I don't have like what I guess yeah, like, what should, Nothing to point to. Yeah, there's I, nothing... I think a lot of
0: people uh, yeah. have that, and they're like, what...
1: And I actually don't even feel uncomfortable with it. I, f- I feel uncomfortable maybe with this idea of, like, me being a convincing... Playing a convincing role, you know, of like, oh, no, come on, let's do it. And then the other, you know, my, my friend, I had this other friend who felt guilty. I know he told me, you know, I feel guilty. Oh, you know, I'm, you know, even though... Uh, so I think that that, you know, like, looking back, I mean... One of the recent podcasts, I think you were talking about it and saying kind of, okay, well, that was, but it's like, what am I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I can't make any sense of it. Can you? I mean,
0: is well, that? You know, my, my feeling about stuff when it's, when you're kids and you're near each other in age, um, it, it, we need to cut ourselves slack about that, about that stuff, you know? Even even when it's sibling uh stuff, I, I, I just feel like it, beating yourself up about stuff you did as a kid is a really unnecessary way to be to be hard on yourself. Hmm. And while it might be okay to reflect upon it to try to, you know, maybe connect dots or something, um Beating yourself up about it, I, I don't think serves any purpose. I think, I think the um, the purpose of good self reflection is to say how can I move forward from what I've done in the past and try to be a better person. I think that's the most important part of of self reflection. Not to to say where am I on a scale of shitty people you know that's and we yeah. go there we go there all the time well i know i'm better than hitler and i'm less than mother <laughs> teresa <laughs> where where do i land that is such a waste of mental yeah, energy yeah it's true
1: it's true yeah i think maybe it's just because it fits in with this kind of story of like um the guilt around this idea of like myself as a manipulative person you know mm-hmm. like oh Um, that's kind of being one of the ways I definitely beat myself up, but also one of the actions that I've had to look at and being like, Oh wow, where do I, you know, and it's only recently that I've started to look at manipulativeness and being like, why, why do, why can't I just tell someone that I want something or that I need (laughs) something? Uh, Why do I have to be like, you know, and it's because, and I'm not sure if this is the full answer, but it's because like, I just, it was always treated as, I don't know, like there was something wrong with just wanting something for yourself. You know, in my family growing up, it was just like seen as, I mean, like the classic line that my parents would would say was like, you're a spoiled brat, you know, it was just like, so like, you know, selfish, spoiled, like these words were used so much. And to this day, like in my relationship with my siblings, it's, there's almost this uncomfortableness um, expressing what we want what we want if we want something you know it's like almost like oh you have to feel guilty about that you know about wanting something do you get uncomfortable when people compliment you i do it's 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 changed a lot to be honest and now i actually do feel like you know what i do love myself and you know what like i would like to like love my body not in any egotistical um kind of narcissistic way although i'm perfectly capable of that too, but just in a kind of way where I'm like, you know, it's not, there's nothing wrong with loving yourself. And it, it's, I think that, um, in my family growing up, it was, it was automatically assumed to be like narcissism, you know, it was, uh, yeah. So it was just uncomfortable. Like you couldn't speaking well of yourself was considered unacceptable, you know, in a in a weird way, which I think is so, I think it's, I think that something's wrong with that. Cause I, I, I think it's good to have, um to be able to explore that place between i'm i'm a god and i'm a piece of shit you know but it was like <laughs> uh, you think but i just didn't have that as a playground yeah. you know it was like if if you even said something like you know what i'm pretty proud of like what i made here they're like oh you know the, the attitude was like oh you're proud huh you know like this kind oh, of oh that's horrible well, actually, it's it's funny because my parents were so like good cop, bad cop. You know, my mom was like the Montessori teacher, educator. You know, like everything is great; just give them positive reinforcement. And my dad was like, why Why can't we beat them? You know, like is there <laughs> is there <laughs> what changed? You know, my mom used to beat me with a like the old story is that my dad my 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 grandmother used to beat him with um a carpet beater, and it's like. It's like when it's told in the family, it's told like as a funny thing, even though I'm like, that's not that funny. Wow! Like, oh, ha ha ha! I was cowering under the table because she tried to beat me with this thing and broke it on it on the you know on the table. <laughs> like, suppose
0: I suppose that's that's how your dad keeps the pain down. Is to is to yes.
1: There's a lot of joking, and is he an angry person, your dad? Oh yeah, totally, dude. He he loves. That's the thing with my dad. He loves like um, and he's mellowed out, mellowed out a lot. So you know, but he, growing up, I experienced him as someone with like just always like a a low simmer of anger, you know, and Mm -hmm. and it would go from low simmer to boiling over, and the boiling over that the ultimate boiling over point was like you get slapped, and um. And he's a, just super into control, you know, it's like so much about control, like, um, and I actually did all this weird stuff, like I interviewed my dad at a certain point, you know, and and found out like all this stuff that was really interesting in terms of where he came from, you know, because his dad died when he was really, really young. And then his mom basically went into like extended mourning mode. So she was either mourning for like eight years or something, or she was working to keep the roof over their head so it's like he was completely abandoned totally abandoned and also like he st- he's basically he didn't have what he wasn't getting what he needed emotionally from her and he watched her be super emotional about her husband so for him like emotion is like no like he it's almost like he doesn't believe in it you know it's like sure he didn't get any of it well and, you know and, and also I mean? yeah and someone else expressing it is directly linked with him not getting what he needs yeah so it's a terrifying experience when someone's just honestly emotional you know and um but yeah he he you know it's it, i had like that kind of, i still have like ptsd basically and i maybe i'm just really sensitive you know um i think i definitely am but uh from just like that feeling of that rising anger, you know? And it wasn't about getting slapped. Like, maybe I got slapped 10 times, you know? But it was, like, always, wa- you know, that threat. And just, like, the voice would start to rise. And, you know, like, later in my weird, like, drug-fueled, like, falling apart moments, I, like, it, it, was, it was, like, the father's voice in the walls, you know, vibrating. Like, these kind of apocalyptic visions of, like, it's always there, you know? And it's, like, mm-hmm. it's boiling, you know? And it's, like where does that come from and it's just like that angry person
0: always being around you know so a- any other uh, seminal moments from from childhood or adolescence before we get into the stuff you struggle with as an adult
1: um i was really super awkward as an adolescent you know i was like just i just did not know how to fit in a, like i was very comfortable until um the hierarchy set up and the what Like the, is it, am I pronouncing it wrong? uh, Hierarchy? Hierarchy. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Until the hierarchy was set up and, you know, entered this kind of realm of um, middle school and high school. And then I was like, whoa, I just did not know my place. I was the eldest of my siblings. I had no one really to kind of learn to be cool from. And I was so kind of overcompensating constantly, really loud, you know, very awkward and, um, Pretty smart, too, you know, and just like I would alternate between like, fuck, I suck, I'm not, you know, or I um, can't wait till everyone else grows up like these idiots, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, I'd never really felt a part of, that's for sure.
0: And how many different high schools did you go to? Wow,
1: yeah, quite, quite a few. I mean, I guess at, towards the end, it's, it wasn't, I mean, high schools, just two, actually. Venezuela and Brazil, but what was so kind of intense about that was I moved from France to Venezuela, which is like super different culture, and then even Venezuela to Brazil, so it was like constantly changing friends and the environment, you know, which... Were you fluent in Spanish? No, because you live in this expat bubble, you know, as a kind of... I see. You know, you're in these international schools. My friends were all American, so I kind of... Oh, okay. But then at the same time, I was American, but I wasn't, you know, I remember like... Some kid making fun of me for saying phlegm, phlegm, you know, because I read so much. So yeah. I knew all these words, but then the pronunciation it would come out all weird. That's so hilarious. I was like, you're not part of one. Of, you're not one of us. I certainly wasn't a Latin kid. I went through puberty like 15,
0: you know. I remember being a kid and riding with my my older friend. I think I was like 10 and we were driving with um, his dad and we passed a car and it was, a, it was a, a Grand Prix, and I said, oh, I love uh, the Grand prix." <laughs> yeah. And they both started laughing, and I felt so dumb.
1: <laughs> I know. It's exactly those moments, like, oh, damn, I'm dumb, you know? Yeah. It was, like, just not fitting in, you know? And for me, that was, like, so, I was so wounding. Uh, it was so intense, The the kind of shame. You know, my whole body would just go into cold sweats, and I'd be like, oh, man, everyone knows I'm an idiot, you know?
0: And then would you dwell on it afterwards? Oh, to replay,
1: constant replay. What did people look like when they looked at me, you know, and then what did they say afterwards and how are they treating me now? And it would, it would create a feedback loop.
0: So I would kind of keep everything going and just never ending. Um, I recommend if you, if you're listening to this and, and you relate to that part that, uh, that Julian just shared, listen to the mini episode, um, with, um, Guy Winch. He's a clinical psychologist, and he has a book, um, and he shares tips for some of the most common emotional stressors, and um, there's one on rumination, and he has some great tips for trying to break the cycle of ruminating. Mm, Yeah. Yeah, I I still ruminate about things that I did. Um, One of the ones that haunts me to this day is I was doing this... um, VH1 show, I was a guest on this VH1 show called The List, and basically you would come prepared with, they would say, you know, the greatest, what's the the greatest three songs ever, ever made. And you would come with your three, and then you would debate with the other people about what their three were. And there was a rotating uh, host, and the host happened to be Katie Lang. And I... I had just seen her uh, sing at a Joni Mitchell tribute concert uh, like a couple of weeks before that and blew me away, just absolutely blew me away. So I was kind of gushing to begin with. But on top of that, I had just started taking meds and I didn't realize at that time that I was in a hypomania, which can be common sometimes in the beginning of taking meds. So I thought I was just the most fascinating, interesting person, and the entire show really needed to be about how I love Katie so much. And wouldn't it be funny if I was going to try to get her to come over to the other side? Dude, it was I, – I still get – a knot in the pit of my stomach. I was cutting other people off. At one point, I went over and I sat in her lap. <laughs> and, and she was being very nice about it. But, dude, it was... it When when the day I realized what had really happened and how selfish I was... It, and one of the guests was like, uh, are you going to give anybody else a chance to talk? I mean, it was... Oh, it like was... It's it's said, said that during... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was... <laughs> awful it was I I actually hope I can find some tape of it so that I can maybe put it out there so I can get over it you know what I mean because I want it hidden away I, I, it I, and I ruminated about that to the point where like for the 10 years after that when I would think of it I would almost want to be physically sick you know there's just so much so much shame associated with that um so, I, I,
1: I so relate to that, because I've been in, in hypomanic states several times, and, man, you just get this plan in your head, you know, and, and it's and just nobody like can nothing, talk on nothing it. can stop you. You just think you don't get it. You yeah, don't yeah, get yeah. my
0: brilliance. Yeah, no, no, no. You don't oh, get man. that I see things other yeah. people don't see. Oh, yeah, yeah you yeah. do. They're just... <laughs>
1: terribly ill-advised no it's there's two types of people when i'm in that state there's people who are fucking super jealous and there's <laughs> yes! people who are like this is one of the best moments of my life i'm, yes. a, I'm loving this when other people see this
0: doors are gonna open
1: yeah oh this is that God. moment you know but you don't know but you're like basic you're basically tom cruise on oprah's couch you
0: know yes <laughs> just... i related to that when i when i yeah. saw him and everybody was making fun of him um I was like, I feel for him. Yeah, I feel for him. Yeah, and, and I am glad that that was that hypomania was just something related to the the beginning stages of that of that med. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, I've dealt with um, kind of cyclothymia, uh, which is what I, I think they I think that's what they call BP four, as far as like bipolar four which
0: is a kind of rapid, more rapid cycling. Um, so instead of a month of depression and a month of mania, it's like hours of, of each Yeah, it,
1: it can be really short-lasting, and it also, it, it's less acute. So you have, you know, the depression um, it does not kind of strand you to your bed for months on end, and the mania is kind of, is more subtle. So it's actually kind of terrifying because you you don't really know if you're in it or not like you described you know <laughs> yes. you're like Am, is this that's actually one of my fears yeah. it's like i'm in a mania and i don't know because my joy is, is very it, close to me wrong
0: i'm dressed as santa claus in the summer <laughs> but i'm having such a good time and the kids seem to enjoy the presents yeah absolutely oh my god so uh, give me some some snapshots of your uh moments of
1: mania oh man yeah it's it they would usually come with the summer you know especially when i was doing drugs because then what i really loved was uh, like pharma, any pharmaceutical speed you know like dexedrine adderall ritalin um i got into coke later but it just you know that stuff is just perfect because it'll set you right off and then um i would just basically have so much energy i would go around You know, I'd wear like the same two pairs of shorts for two months straight and just be this guy on the go, like living out of my backpack, you know, with my sunglasses on and just every conversation was so great. You have gotten down
0: to the core of life. Yeah,
1: it's exactly that. Yeah, you really feel like this is joy. It'll go on forever. You know, like life has really begun. And you bet. I mean, you make a lot of people. First of all, you interrupt everybody, you know. Like all the time, and that's
0: so, one of the things that I like how I interrupted you to 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 share this. But that's one of the things that my psychiatrist would would say when he was trying to judge whether or not I was bipolar. Um, he he would say, "Do you find yourself dominating conversations or interrupting people?" Yeah, and that's a really important one for people out there mm-hmm. that that don't know if they're in hypomania or not, because it's hard to tell sometimes. Is am I experiencing joy? and just a zest for life mm. or am i manic and i think that is the biggest key is the is the constantly interrupting or dominating it's true and and i'm also just a very talkative
1: person or i can be so it's it is hard to draw the line sometimes but i know that i would just kind of i'm thinking back to this specific summer actually in vancouver when i was in university um I would. I just thought all oh, the girls wanted me so bad, you know. I was just such a bad boy, you know, like rocking around town with my... And it's just like, wow. Yeah, compare that to kind of, you know, the reality of
0: the way I kind of felt about my body and stuff. It was just so out of sync, you know. Would it, would it be fair to say that it was because it was a freedom from that other... Those other moments when it was, I'm a piece of shit and oh, absolutely. I'm doomed or whatever the thoughts were that were going through your head, almost like I've been released from prison because mm-hmm. that's what it would feel like to me when I would, when I would feel either a vigor for life that was healthy or hypomania, it both were like, oh, I'm free at last. I'm out absolutely. of this fucking, you know, jail yeah. cell. It's absolutely that it's, it's, um,
1: it's just this feeling of acceleration, like everyone's left in the dust, you know, and it's, it's really that everyone's trying to hold me back. That's a really good sign that I'm in a manic episode. If I start to feel like everybody in my life is just holding me back and I've got better shit, like lined up that involves nobody that I love and care about right now, you know, where I'm like, oh, I have this other life that's even better better and i'm going there and it involves kind of leaving everyone behind that's a really good sign that i'm not <laughs> heading to a good
0: place <laughs> uh, by the way if uh you want to you or the listener want to hear a good episode on uh bipolar one mania uh, the episode with brody stevens um he had about a month or two uh manic episode that that uh, landed him in the hospital and um it's a, it's a very compelling uh, episode, but go ahead. No, I don't remember where I was at. Uh, we're just talking about uh, leaving everybody behind in the dust. Um, yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, and, and I constantly, I'll get that itch in my life, you know, just that kind of, um, man, you know, I deserve better than all of this. And, you know, it, it's just, I just want to run, basically. I like to start things, you know, I really like to start things, that feeling of ditching whatever responsibility i feel like i've kind of embroiled myself in and just running mm-hmm. you know and just being like yes so maybe it'd be fair to say drastic life changes I love are it. also
0: a red flag
1: well yeah but i mean with me it's i guess a bit, it's mixed up with i moved every two years so i'm just so used to it i know how to do it you know even though it's incredibly disorienting you'd think that after all this moving i'd be better at it but how good are you at
0: packing a box
1: awful and also awful at being in a new place. I get inst- you know I get really depressed. It's super challenging. I'm really bad at making new friends. I mean, I think my my defense mechanism when I was moving was just books. I would just sit. I remember being in Venezuela, you know, wow, we moved to the tropics like we'll go to the beach every weekend. I was like, "Oh, it's gross. The sand is nasty, the water's sticky." And I would just basically just be in the shade in a hammock reading a Stephen King novel. That would be my day at the beach, you know, and everyone's like, why aren't you enjoying yourself? I'm like, I like air conditioning and kind of carpets and video games. Like, I, I you know, I don't want to be out here in this world. I've always felt somehow like the world is um, contaminating me, you know, or something or like, I don't want to, I don't want to start yet. Because then I get to find out if I'm good at it or not. You know, I'd like to just be in the antechamber of life just kind of before, you know, and... Like you want to figure it out
0: before you step into it?
1: Sure, yeah. I want to nibble all... Like, what I found myself doing is kind of nibbling around the cookie of life until there's nothing left, but never having taken an honest bite. And it's only now, I think, in the last few years where I'm like, I feel like I'm taking an honest bite. And because the honest bite is terrifying to me... But not
0: in a manic way.
1: No, it's very hard to differentiate. I have to kind of be um, a scientist, a researcher, and really try to kind of move back and just say, okay, what's actually going on? Like, what are the kind of base signifiers? How much have I been sleeping? You know, I'm trying to. I have to gather data about myself because I'm not very good at evaluating if I'm all right or not. You do know, you wear a lab coat. I do. Yeah. For you, the second me wears a lab coat, but for
0: some reason you're confused and you also have a stethoscope,
1: yeah, totally. And I'm also like the prison warden, hosing myself down with like a high pressure hose, going, Welcome to hell, bitch, (laughs) just kind of looking, (laughs) yeah, calling yourself fresh meat. It's because it's hard because I don't want to live on the outside of my body, you know, I want to be in my body living my life, but sometimes if I'm there for too long, I lose the ability to judge what's going on and i'm in some fucking insane thing that's damaging all my relationships
0: so it's like it's okay to take a big bite out of the cookie just make sure other people's fingers aren't still on it yes
1: it's a good (laughs) if everyone's pissed off at you that's a good sign like if you've stopped caring that everyone's pissed off at you it's a good sign that you know i mean unless you're really around a bunch of assholes like if you're in a decent place in your life you want to ask other people where you're at i think it's important for me to just say you know how do you feel about what's going on these days for me? You know, I, I tend to check actually a lot with my loved ones that I trust and say, "Hey, um, I think that's key that I trust s- that I trust exactly." Huge people important. who actually want me to succeed who are not um, threatened by my successes, but who also um, are able to kind of tell me, "You know, I think that might be the wrong choice, Julian," because I I often want to make wrong choices. Like I I feel like it was like that what we were speaking about earlier about manipulation. You know, I often feel that I have to kind of hide from this person, this, and then do this to that to make sure that this happens. And that's where other people are very useful in reminding me, no, you you don't really have to actually start like a long narrative of lies to get where you want to go. Like, you'll be fine. You're, you're, you're you're a decent human being like you don't need to you don't need
0: to manipulate people into thinking you're a good human being yeah and you know one of the things um i want to recommend the fourth thing on this uh, podcast <clears throat> but the mini episode on co-narcissism one of the common uh, traits of children who are raised by narcissists is they are terrified of speaking up Uh, for themselves, advocating for themselves and having needs and so they want and I completely relate to that. Uh, I was shamed sometimes for um, you know I was called selfish a lot and stuff like that and so uh, it drives my wife fucking bananas that, that I'll Instead of saying, uh, "Hey, could you put the laundry back in, you know, for me?" because I'd like to go grab a cup of coffee, I'll say, "Boy, I haven't had a cup of coffee in a while." In the hopes that she'll say, "Well, I'll take care of the laundry for you." And this is the point now where she'll say, "Just ask me to put the fucking laundry in the
1: dryer." I know. I God, I'm just cringing inwardly because two days ago I had that exact situation. My my girlfriend works in like the music kind of realm, and she got kind of grab bag of gifts and I, you know, there was headphones in there that I really wanted and I could have just said, you know, I, you have plenty of headphones. Could I have those headphones you know, I really need headphones right now. Instead of like, I can't
0: wait to hear how you spun this.
1: Oh God, look at these headphones. These are great. Aren't they great? Look, they do USB. They even go up and down with the volume. They're compatible with the iPhone five. It's just like never ending. And when it got down to it, she was like, I just don't like feeling manipulated. And I'm like
0: oh yeah which sometimes we don't even realize realize we're doing doing
1: it it. yeah it's, it's it's so embarrassing to think about it like that guy you know just being there like wow look at them and just going through the fucking feature list of it as if she's not aware that that's just me angling for her to give them to me you know and it's Oh, God, I just feel so embarrassed right now. (laughs) It's just because I think it's the petty things that I feel the most embarrassed about, you know, anything to do with money mortifies me. You know, when I'm like kind of angling my way in the saving 10, 20 bucks on some shit like that drives me bananas because the big stuff, it's like, okay, I get it. You know, I'm emotionally damaged. There's issues there. But when it's the small stuff, it's like, oh, it's just slimy and just
0: kind of (laughs) gross. I get it. I get it. (laughs) So what are some other issues you talked about? Um, and don't let me jump the gun if there's other stuff you want to touch on. But you talked about uh, panic attacks.
1: Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, um well, I always felt super anxious, you know. And as soon as I discovered drugs, it was just wonderful. You know, I, I experienced. What was the
0: first drug that you were like, oh, I'm touching the face of God? Oh, man. So many. The was first the, t- was the pot. first one. Pot, Pot, yeah. yeah, it was pot, yeah I mean,
1: alcohol was really cool But I only really fully discovered its effects later I really got into drugs first, you know yeah, when I smoked pot, like, time became this, like, goofy, elastic thing. Like, how did we get here in the pantry? Like, we're going to eat stuff. And whoa, what's happening? Is is it in the movie or in my mind? And, like, couldn't stop laughing. You know, I was that super awkward kid who's just like, we're so high. Just saying that over and over, you know, <laughs> until your friend's like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so I remember pot being amazing because it just totally deformed the kind of timeline of anxiety, you know, and I was just like free floating in this weird timeless space and everything was so bright and funny and just eating stuff and, you know, and, and like getting in trouble was such a fun concept, you know, it's like, Oh my God, can you hear something? Oh my God, I think they're going to catch us. You know, this, I loved that. It was like being in a, in a game, you know, in a fun game. I always loved those kind of games where you're set in loose in a forest and there's a set kind of rule book and you're playing with all these kids, but you understand the rules. I never understand the rules. That that was my... Growing up, I'm so fucking anxious because the idea of, of this kind of world with no rules, anything can happen. Things can be taken from you and never returned. That's what I mean about nibbling the cookie. It's like, I'm terrified because I... You know, I don't want to believe that you can lose something and and can't get it back afterwards. You know, I I think it was just growing up with my mom. She always made me feel like everything was reversible and not that big a deal. So I never wanted to make a big choice in my life because I didn't want to close any doors. So I never really walked through any. That's what I mean about biting into the cookie. I it's see. saying I accept the consequences of choosing one thing as opposed to being in a place where you have all these choices ahead of you. And that was very difficult for me to to become an adult. Do you sometimes self-sabotage so, so that
0: you don't? Um... Yeah. Oh, yeah. So that you fail on your own instead of somebody taking success away from you?
1: Mm-hmm. yeah no absolutely there's I, a control and self-sabotage totally it's
0: that, so alluring because it's like mm-hmm. there's nothing i hate more than than expending energy for not
1: exactly and also i just i just enjoy the thinking of the world as this totally fucked up place where only five percent needs to be taken into account because then i can fully control that five percent you know but if I have to just consider myself a part of the world as it exists in its just absolute multiplicity, it's terrifying to me, you know, because I don't know what what's coming next. And that goes back to my parents. Like, I don't know who I'm going to hurt, which is my mom's side. Or who I'm going to get hurt by, which is my dad's side, you know? So I don't want to even play the game. That's what I mean about just sitting in a room and being kind of in the pre life stage. Before all the choices, you know, you're not out there. You haven't lost any points and you haven't gained any points. Everything's just theoretical. And Pod is so fucking perfect for that. I and mean, video games. Oh my God. Because you can it. compete, but there's no. It's so controlled.
0: It's so controlled. And you get dealt a, uh, a shitty hand for that episode. You just hit reset. Totally. And masturbation, because you get to control the images you're looking at. They'll never talk back to you. They'll never get hurt or hurt you. They do in mine. Oh, when I jack off, they're like, You're so sad. <laughs> you're so <laughs> pathetic. And I'll be like, But this is all. This is I. This, this, this is God gave me thumbs. I'm, <laughs> I'm a very realistic masturbator.
1: I love the idea of like the porn actor breaking the fourth wall and telling you that you're such a sad
0: puppet. Oh, Why god. are you doing this? Really? You've gone through a whole box of Kleenex in a week. <laughs> you haven't returned phone calls.
1: Oh my god. Yeah. I I mean that's the thing, is even before drugs, I mean, it was TV, like a good episode of DuckTales, you know? And then just like the internet, once I discovered that, it was like jacking off for just hours and then once I discovered online role playing games, I played like the first one, Ultima Online, and I was just beyond addicted. I mean, I would, it would just swap out my whole life. Like, I would, I would be rich in the game. And so, in my mind, all day at school, I'm just like, I feel rich. <laughs> like, I'm that, you know what I mean? That's what I want. Yeah. I want to be able to fucking see what's happening. Cause in life, everything is, there's so much gray area, you know, but in a game, it's like fucking coded, you know, you're like, okay, I have this much money. You know, and it's
0: just so much. It's true. It's control. It's control. I, I, one of my addictions is um, Scrabble, <laughs> and I got a word on Scrabble one time that was worth 194 points.
1: That, that what did you did you break the game? Did someone call you on the phone and tell you that you won a lot of money? I, I have to say, I was
0: high for about two weeks from that. <laughs> And I would, like, bring it up in conversation. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. In playing poker with my friends, I'd be like, you guys ever play Scrabble? <laughs> you know, I got a word. It was worth $100. Like, I, it was almost killing me yeah. to have to keep it inside. And, of course, I, I, you know, when I went to bed that night, I told my wife. And she was like, oh, that's great. And I was like, I don't think you understand. Yeah, no, no, no. How fucking huge, 194 Point w- mm. word, and then the word was "nickered." By the way, for Scrabble oh, geeks wow. that are out there, I didn't even know what it meant. But no. I was like, I think this is a word, and it it stretched across across two triples. And it it was it, it was like this thing that I that I that I accomplished. Even though it's a it's a game, it was like I I know you understand. I I'm totally, having trouble uh, expressing what, uh, it, but I How it filled that emptiness in me. Yeah, and you know what it is,
1: for me at least, when I get in those moments, I'm like, this time, they're finally going to love me. Like, this is going to be the fucking thing, man. I just bowled 199. Like, I can die after this, you know? Like, I'm going to get the love I need. And it's like, you know, uh, when I started writing, I've always wanted to to write a novel. I wrote my first novel and I was like, well, well, you know, once I write a novel, I'm going to be, my self-esteem is going to be awesome. No, it's not then it's always on to the next thing you know so it's like this endless thing but and the people that
0: don't react the way you want those are the ones that are burned into my memory oh my God. it's not the yeah. it's not the because the ones that are impressed when i'm in the bad place i'm like oh they just don't know this person that isn't impressed they know yeah well because for
1: me it's my mom and my dad the one who does know or who does give me kind of approval I'm like oh well you're wor- you're instantly worthless, like you mean nothing because my mom just gave me approval with no regards to w- what was actually being kind of approved. It was just like constant positivity, you know, terrified of being a bad mother, and then my dad, it
0: was like you can never it's never enough with him, you know, and, and there's nothing more delicious than the accolades of the person that doesn't give them absolutely That's like mm-hmm. th- I, I, yeah. some of us, I think it drives us to the to the gates of hell, yeah you know dating the unavailable person you mm-hmm. know so many people don't realize that that, that is a, the hit that they're after that's the that's the drug is to get that person that isn't really interested in them to to have those moments when they're seen by that person is like everything
1: that's actually so um apropos for me because recently the the biggest change that I've seen in my kind of emotional recovery has been that. Becoming aware of how I will always seek out the person not giving me approval in any group of people and I will make such a big inner deal about it. That will be the person that matters the most and i'll obsess 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 about them instead of building positive relationships with the people who are forthcoming with their love and and kind of want to interact with me you know um just to become aware of that and how sad that is how i set myself up systematically because that person is like you know i know how to configure with them emotionally you You did
0: it your whole childhood exactly i know exactly your dad's love or to hold his anger at bay yeah exactly absolutely Let's take a moment and uh, give a little bit of love to our, our sponsor, uh, PillPack. It's the uh, online pharmacy that delivers convenient pre-sorted meds right to your door. Maybe you got a nice porch they lay it on. Maybe you got a back porch. Maybe, who knows, maybe you live in a heliport and uh, you can talk to PillPack and see if they can swing it in by helicopter. Maybe, Paul, you start riffing and talk about the product instead. How about that? How about you now you beat yourself up about that? no I'm not gonna, I'm gonna talk about Pillpack. Uh Pillpack is just an awesome idea. It's it's well executed. They've got great customer service. Um they ship their meds to you in pre-sorted packages uh arranged by day and even by time of day. Um they ship prescriptions to, uh, to 33 states and non-prescriptions to all 50. And here's the part I think is really key is it's super easy to enroll. Um, they will contact your present pharmacy and have all your information um, sorted out and, so that you don't experience any gap in getting your meds. And uh, I stopped having um, going to the pharmacy to get my meds years ago. I get them mailed, and, and uh, I, I love it. And uh, unfortunately, I... My meds are through my wife's union, and I have to use their mail service. Otherwise, I'd be all over this pill pack. I'd be, oh yeah, I'd be rubbing its ass. I'd be grabbing pill pack's sweet ass and whispering it in its its ear. But uh, I'm a big fan of uh, mail order um, pharmacies. And um, here's the thing that I like about them is you don't, have to wait in line at the pharmacy they don't run out so you don't have to come back and stand in line behind uh, you know 20 people anyway enough of my yakking um go to pillpack.com slash happy hour and even if you just go to check out the site you're helping to support the podcast and um you'll get your first month free when you sign up through pillpack.com slash happy hour you're in a support group now for um drugs and, and alcohol Yes, absolutely.
1: Talk about, uh, are we skipping over? um, Actually, let's go back to the panic attacks, and I'll run you through kind of the progression of that. So I I discovered pot, that was maybe when I was about 15, Um, and then, so I smoked so much pot in the last three years of high school, a lot, Uh, they're actually like somewhat of a blur. Um, And then right towards the end, I discovered harder drugs, uh, ecstasy. And ecstasy was amazing, because I was a pissed off adolescent really pissed off. I know my brother and my sister kind of suffered at the hands of my moods and and just my kind of general rejection of them as a kind of older brother who's uncool. They were more kind of socially successful than me. And I was just did not know how to be cool. And so I was just like, God, these fucking, you know, they're dragging me down and also humiliating me. So I really was a real asshole to them for a little while. And when I discovered ecstasy, I was like, oh my God, like this is what it feels like to have total compassion for myself and for others. And, you know, even though I'm I'm, I'm sober and have been for a little while, like I don't think that that was a negative thing. That was a beautiful thing. Um, of course, then my relationship to those drugs went really quickly, you know? I mean, I was like 17, tried my first ecstasy. It was maybe only six months before that summer after graduation where I had my first full-blown panic attack, you know, because I was into kind of ecstasy, and there was speed in and ecstasy, and, um, and I got into drink, drinking beer to come down, and whiskey to come down um, from the ecstasy, and I had my first panic attack because I'd been taking a bunch of really pure ecstasy over a month, traveling Europe with my
0: friends. Um, I can't imagine what the come down from that was like. Your brain must have just been uh, completely depleted of joy. It, you know, it was weird
1: because it wasn't yet. For some reason... I it hadn't hit yet. My come downs were still kind of this weird joyous afterbask of like just the experience of
0: having known what it means to be compassionate and love myself and love really? others. because everybody I know that has done go on, gone on an ecstasy binge, even sometimes just one night of it, the next day they are just in the bluest of blue. I know,
1: and that's very unusual because my later experiences are very much like that. But at first it wasn't. I think it was just a very small period of time, maybe five months, you know, where it was still working really well. Um, And then from the E, I kind of started getting this sense of disconnection. Like just everything was kind of fuzzy and a little far and my body felt floaty and I was starting to dissociate. It was the first experience I had in kind of dissociating from my own identity and going what what's going on here and then i went to tennessee <laughs> and was gonna work for my uncle um and uh i was feeling this kind of floaty feeling and one night we went it was like you know i was, wasn't smoking pot wasn't drinking because i was in he's a kind of uh, non-drinker and non-drug user And uh, I went out one night with this daughter of another friend of theirs, which was like my night to kind of go out and have some fun. And she, of course, was super into pot. And then so we went straight to her boyfriend's house and uh, we smoked pot out of a bowl. And apparently there was like DMT in the bottom of the bowl, which is like a tryptamine drug, which is a really intense. Supposedly, what I've heard is that it releases the same chemical as you release naturally when you die or something. Mm -hmm. Super great times, basically. I mean, I totally understand why we take that recreationally. But I didn't even take it on purpose. That's also
0: what ayahuasca is, right? That's the primary ingredient in ayahuasca, right? I'm not sure. I don't think so. Is it? Maybe it is. I think so.
1: Okay. I think ayahuasca lasts longer because DMT is a half hour high. Oh, okay. It's really short and really intense. And I took it not on purpose. It was at the bottom of the bowl and I smoked it and then I had my first... I mean, forget panic attack. This was way beyond that. It was like full body numbness. Um, I couldn't feel anything. Like the tips of my fingers were vibrating. Like my whole body was vibrating. Um, I thought my heart had stopped. I thought I was going crazy. I thought these two girls I was with were demons. Um, And it was everything. I I looked at my life and all the signifiers Everything that meant something to me, like the books I enjoyed or my friends or my family, and everything was just gone. It was like this this just demonic. Just a sham
0: that you finally saw.
1: It was worse than that. It was like I what like the idea of being human was gone. Like it was like a demonic landscape of just like, I, it's undescribable. It's just pure. It's. It's the opposite of a spiritual experience, you know? It's like the negative side. It's like ego death, basically. Forced ego death that you're not prepared for and that you have no spiritual preparation for whatsoever. So, you're you're just, you know, you. Sh- it's like you should probably only go there at some yogic level beyond I don't know what, but it's it's certainly not for a 17-year-old, you know, like... was isn't to- aware
0: that he has an ego, probably.
1: I, well, I mean, I was always very, like, looking in at myself, but... This was just way beyond that. And it started a very long, very complicated relationship with panic attacks. Um, and uh, that night... Did I, you let the people know that you were having this
0: bad trip? Or did you try yeah. to hide it from them?
1: Yeah. No, I told them. What did they mean, say? I couldn't told them. I, I didn't tell them that they were... I thought they were demons trying to poison me with the water they gave me. But I told them, like, I'm feeling really, really bad, you know? and they were like it's okay it's going to last half an hour i'm like i don't think you get it this is not just a bad trip like i don't is my heart still beating you know and it was the worst honestly i'd rather break a bone like i'd rather it be an in intense physical pain because it's it's um the most terrifying thing i i, I know
0: and so that, that did that then begin um recurring panic attacks mm mm-hmm. mhm yeah from that day on i had um
1: I think, like, elements of schizophrenia, to be honest, you know? I just... Reality was very difficult. When I looked at people's faces, everything would sink behind them, and I didn't really know what it meant that they existed. And I I constantly felt like I had died, and I I was in this, like, fake afterlife thing where everything kept going but had lost its meaning. It was terrifying. And, um, I mean... I was really disconnected. I went to university straight afterwards too, so all my my entire kind of surroundings <laughs> That's changed. <a> bad, <laughs> bad preparation. Yeah, it's like the anti SAT, <laughs> dude. And then I came back from university the first year, and my parents had already moved into a new place, so my home was gone. All my friends changed, and I didn't know who I was. And I was I started carrying around benzos because benzos prescribed by you or by a doctor? It was doctors, yeah. But I went several times to the hospital because I was an addict and I loved drugs, and I, that's when I started getting into booze properly because it fought the um, um, the anxiety. kind of anxiety. Yeah, and, uh, but and, I ended up. And withdrawing
0: from benzos can kill you. It's like the the one of the most dangerous withdrawals.
1: Yeah, yeah. But I always had them on me. Like I wouldn't go scuba diving because I wouldn't be able to pop a benzo if I needed to. You know, I had the sublingual kind of Adderall stuff. How many would you pop a day? Um, I mean, it wasn't so crazy, you know. I I try to t- pop halves. I, I I've always been super very susceptible to drugs, so they act very intensely on me. So maybe t- two two milligrams a
0: day maximum, you know. Really s- stick to that. But it was. But you, you needed know. them to 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 cope. Holy shit! And aren't benzos just meant really to be a temporary kind of stopgap uh, thing? Because you should never stay so- on them. Yeah. No, it's it, that's. I mean,
1: first of all, anything that says take as needed. You know that you're in for a. a, If you're an addict, you're in for a bad ride, because it's like as needed is so conceptual. But benzodiazepines act on your central nervous system, so they were pretty much like well dosed alcohol for me. You know, it was. um, But they did help with the anxiety, and and but they didn't stop me from. It got to the point where years later, I was like, I would be taking like snorting shitloads of coke and then taking that at the same time basically doing what kills all these Hollywood stars, but not with heroin. I just would use benzodiazepines instead, which I think is like the same family anyways. My second panic attack that was that intense was in a at a beach in Brazil. So this is how my memory works in terms of like pain. My friend's like, oh, I have this drug, uh, AMT, trip, alpha methyl or whatever. Just some fucking variation on the thing that sent me, you know, into my first one. You know, it lasts eight hours. Oh, cool. Sixteen times longer than the one that was way too long. <laughs> mm. And so we were at a kind of beach near Rio in, in Brazil, like idyllic, beautiful. We were having a great time and let's take AMT. So it took AMT and the same thing happened. Everything collapsed and I couldn't feel my fingers. I was literally like in the grass, punching the grass to feel my hands so I could feel like a human, like there was something still holding me and these guys came, these Brazilians who were friends of a friend and they were like, what the fuck? This gringo is like flipping out. You know, we got to take him to the beach hospital. So they brought me to the beach hospital in the beach hospital. There were people, there had been a shooting, so they were wheeling in people, like, riddled with bullets, blood everywhere. There was a woman freaking out in the, because she thought her husband was going to die in the waiting room, and I'm like... Did you
0: tell her she's killing your buzz? Yeah, totally. I was Mm. like, this is such a fucking bad high. You are such a downer.
1: Yeah, but that's, I actually was like, I think she's on acid. (laughs) You know, like, (laughs) because I'm such a fucking moron. So I sit there with the doctor, this Brazilian dude, and he's seen a million gringos, um... You know, go into a cocaine frenzy when they arrive in South America and just freak out and come to the hospital. So he's like, "So, how much cocaine have you done?" And I'm like, "None. I've taken this drug, alpha methyltryptamine." He's like, "Okay. So, how much cocaine have you done?" And he just kept going back to that. And I'm like, "No, alpha methyltryptamine." No, no, no. And he's like writing something. And I finally I look down because he keeps asking me how much cocaine. I look down, and he's just drawing a circle in his, on his pad. He's just going in a circle with his pen, because he just, wow. he, he's like, just tell us how much cocaine you took, like, this drug that no one's heard of, you know, Brazilians are not, like, specialists of, pharma, you know, pharmacology, they're just like, okay, gringo, how much coke, and, uh, but finally, they shot me up with diazepam, which is a benzo, and I was like, wow, I was like, this is amazing, you know? Yeah, I went from, like, I'm gonna die, I don't know who I am, to, like, asking the male nurse what music he listened to. <laughs> you know? I was like, hey, man. Are you into, like, techno and stuff? He's like, actually, he looks at me like I'm a fucking idiot, obviously. And he's like, actually, I'm a little more into ACDC. But it was just like, uh. And the girl that I super liked was there just watching me go through all this stuff. And uh, and then before I left the hospital, this is perfect story of an addict. I was like, I'm starting to feel a little edgy, you know. Can you just shoot me up one last time with whatever you <laughs> shot me up with? And because it's Brazil, the guy's like, okay. Just takes me into a side room and like intravenously injects me with benzos. <laughs> and I get back out and these dudes who drove me to the hospital were fucking freaked out. They thought I was going to die or something. They're driving me back and I'm just like blissed out, like just having a great old time. And I get back home and like, I I get back to this little villa. Everyone's like, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, man, I'm totally fine. I sit down, I pour myself a screwdriver and I start rolling a joint. And these dudes are just like, what the, like, what the fuck? You know, like, what is wrong with this kid? I was so fucking high on benzos that I was smoking a cigarette and it was burning a hole through my pants and I couldn't feel it. Until I was like, something warms on my leg. <laughs> it was like the cigarette oh burning God. into my <laughs> So embarrassing. And how
0: much longer was it until you got sober? Holy shit. Or at least went for help to get sober.
1: Man, I tried to get, I mean, I tried to control it so many times before I got sober, but it must have been at least five years from then. Like, you know, I went through so much bad stuff. You're, do you? Did you have a bottom? Yeah.
0: You want to talk I about that?
1: I had many bottoms sure. Yeah, I'll talk about it. I had many many bottoms. Um but the final one was like I'd been in a relationship that I actually liked or um yeah, that I you know, it was like I feel like I'm in love. I had this story basically like if everything sorts itself out then I won't be an addict, you know? Like if my life kind of falls into 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 place, like if I have a job I like, etc. So I was working on this independent music label which was like an exciting project and um, I had this girlfriend that I was excited about, and I just couldn't stop. I still it was still a fucking mess, blacking out, being an asshole. And um, so then, my girlfriend at a certain point was like, "Why don't we just stop drinking for two weeks? You know, just take a break." And she wasn't even telling me to stop the pot or the benzos, like which I constantly had around me and was doing, just the drinking. I was like, "Okay, totally, I can do two weeks." What do you th- who do you think I am? Like some sort of fucking <laughs> alcoholic um and i lasted six days after six days i was like i i don't want to be in a relationship with strings attached this was the wrong <laughs> this was the wrong decision you know and and i thought that was going to go by fine because you know i just knew how to kind of convince people you know to stick and around Manipulator, yeah and to, totally yeah. yeah i knew how to do it very well you know especially with that stuff around that stuff because yeah anyways and so at that point she was like well I guess I have to ask myself if I want to be in this relationship then. And I was like, "What the fuck are you talking about?"
0: <laughs> My play backfired. Yeah,
1: are you joking? No, but I did, I literally was taken off guard because that's how manipulative you get that you don't you're manipulating yourself. I literally thought I could do 2 weeks when I said yes, and I also literally thought it was the normal thing to not be able to do 2 weeks of drinking even though I can smoke pot and take benzos as much as I want. So when she said, I have to reconsider this, or I have to see if I want to stay in this relationship, I was actually surprised. I was like, what? Don't you think that's a little drastic? You know, like, and um, she decided to stay because good codependent. Mm -hmm. And, uh, (laughs) um, but after that, I was like, okay, well, I have to really prove that it was, you know, you know, worth staying. So I'm like, I'm going to control the fuck out of this now. And uh, fast forward to three weeks later, I'd been drinking, but no blackouts, Or at least no blackouts that, you know, had led to bad behavior, um, which had become my standard for acceptable. And um, it was a night we went to this like weird fashion party and like this kind of several lit level thing. And uh, it was like an after party during fashion week. And I was so uncomfortable. I've always been so uncomfortable around like cool things, you know, even though I kind of work and tend to interact with a lot of people like that. I was being very insecure, and and so I was just feeling really insecure. And there was so much free booze; it was just like this Roman orgy of free booze and food. And I just started just pouring these expensive liquors. And anyways, fast forward, blacking out. Um, and we were at a club or something. I black out. Next thing I remember, I wake up the next morning feeling so bad. And it had gotten to the point at that point where, you know, I would drink in the morning because the hangover was so bad. I would drink beer in the morning first thing before i could eat and stuff like that um sometimes and then some weeks were better than others if i smoked pot more Mm -hmm. um but that morning she's like oh you were an asshole again i was like fuck you know like it was like that last kind of i'm gonna do it this time you know she stayed for a reason and uh it wasn't and and it felt so bad and she was like i'm gonna go to work but just don't drink you know, today I'm um, uh, I'm going to work So she, she left to go to work And the first thing I did Is go downstairs and get a bunch of beers And I went back up Into my apartment And just started Usual, like, isolating Drinking alone And so I was just drinking beer all day I ate, like, a sh- fucking pizza fried, Like a frozen pizza And then Just so I could drink more And then it was, like, 4 p.m. And I was starting to fall asleep From the drinking And I was like I need to get some coke It's, like, 4 p.m. on a Tuesday And I'm alone get some cocaine so i call my dealer he's like okay um and then i pass out because i'm so tired from drinking and i get woken up by my dealer who's downstairs and i'm like still no question that i want this cocaine you know like (laughs) so i go down and on my way out of the elevator my girlfriend is coming into the elevator and i'm just wasted you know like totally drunk and even at that point i'm like uh, give me one second. I'll be right back. She's so disappointed in me already. And I'm just like, I'm still going to get the Coke. Like, it doesn't matter. So I go out and I meet my dealer and I, I I bought Coke and weed. And then I come back into the apartment, I go upstairs and like, she had a huge thing against Coke, even though we drank a lot together. And she now has her own kind of support stuff around that. But, um, had a huge thing against drugs. And, uh, so I knew that the Coke was going to be like a big no, no. Um, so I got back up to the apartment. And I just took like, there was a hallway leading to the main room of my apartment and I could see she was on our bed crying. And I took a left into the kitchen and took out like the whole gram of Coke and just snorted the entire thing in one go, just trying to get all of it in my nose at once. And then... Because you um,
0: wanted the higher you wanted to get rid of the evidence.
1: I mean, uh, this was was like, okay, well, I don't even know at that point. I mean, Yeah. yeah, both. Like, I knew that I I wasn't going to be able to space it out. And I was like, Mm -hmm. I'm definitely not going to not do it. I'm definitely going to put this in me. And uh, so I put it all in my nose. And then I walked into the bathroom to check my nose before I went (laughs) to be with her. And I was just, like, looking at myself in the mirror, like, what the fuck is this? You know, like, this is not... This is really not right. Like, this doesn't fit with any narrative that I've told myself. You know, this is really out of control. And then... Uh, yeah, I'd been doing some therapy, which had been really helpful. And so my therapist had kind of planted the seed for support groups.
0: Um, for she, for drinking and using drugs.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, She'd said that that existed. And if I was, you know, uh, uh, an addict and an alcoholic, that I could always go get help. But um, she also said, well, if you're not, I'm sure it'll just sort itself out, which it, it didn't. And... um and then, you know, I was just really high on coke and looking at my girlfriend, and she was crying, and I was like, okay, well, I'll go check out a support group, you know? And then I guess I had to go check out a support group because I'd said it, and um, the next day I felt too bad to do it, and then the day after that I went to my first support group. And, um yeah, it uh, it's just, the that was the best choice I've ever made in what my life. What was your
0: initial impression at your first
1: thought everybody was really weird and i thought they were all wasted actually
0: (laughs) i was shocked by how happy everybody was yes i was like because i thought it was just going to be everybody was The way it's portrayed in movies, it's so so rarely do they – it pisses me off. They rarely portray joy. And I know there are meetings where there's not a lot of joy. But my experience, the meetings that I go to, there's a lot of joy in my support groups. I
1: couldn't agree more. You know, it was not at all my experience. Uh, The way it's portrayed is ridiculous, actually. And it actually does piss me off, too, because, you know, I think that a lot of people are getting the wrong impression. And then they don't want to seek help because they're like, well, you know, I'm not going to hang out with – those people you know and my experience was that I was just kind of um, suspicious of how nice people were I was like what why would this guy be so happy and kind of you know giving me his number to call him whenever even at night like telling me all this stuff which I now do to new people you know in the support group and find great joy and totally kind of find it funny like their distrust because I was there,
0: you know, is that person one of my friends uh, always says when he shares he says to the people that are new, we have no reason to lie to you. You're not that important.
1: Yeah. Exactly.
0: <laughs> that's that's what blows my
1: mind now. I'm like why would these people want to manipulate you? Like what do they ha- stand to gain by you coming to these things? You're kind of a miserable fucker, you know. Like it's not like they're <laughs> you're bringing great joy to their lives, even though obviously helping someone oh. is so much joy and and allows me to kind of maintain a kind of healthy um,
0: a healthy state in relationships. And to, there's a momentum to support groups that is as once you are helped and continue to be helped, um, what keeps you going is then passing that on, and helping the other people. And it's like riding a bike. It's Once you keep that momentum going, um, your life just has a way of starting to work out, and in ways that you have no control over. That's the thing that's the most mind-blowing. One of my friends uh, says, when we roll in here, we have four flat tires, and people tell you work on the carburetor and you're like but you don't you don't understand i've got four flat tires work on the carburetor but how am i going to work on the carburetor and eventually you just throw your hands up and you say all right i'll work on the carburetor and all of a sudden when you're done working on the carburetor the tires have filled themselves and it's that's insane been my experience in it support is, groups
1: it is insane it's so it's so kind of it really makes no sense it makes no logical sense and that's what's kind of mind-blowing about it is is that it it goes against uh, everything i've done before
0: you know and there's almost no logic to it no and logic, trying yeah. to predict how it's going to unfold is the biggest waste of time it will actually keep yeah. you from getting better because you're still in your ego and your intellect and the, i believe the spiritual plane cannot be accessed through the intellect it has to be accessed at least in the beginning through putting the intellect inside aside and saying, I don't know, I'm open to whatever.
1: I couldn't agree more. And, and when I came in, that was my main obstacle, was just like, I'm so fucking smart and I'm able to judge all these people and I know who they are. And uh, I had actually this very strange experience where I was very close to anything, you know, even remotely that mentioned spirituality, even though that's why I started to take drugs, mm-hmm. was this spiritual quest in a way. And by the time I came in to support groups, I was so negative and cynical and just like closed to anything like that because it had failed me so profoundly, you know, and I no longer, I mean, I I just, it was like a, it was a a defense mechanism because if there was no solution, then if I opened myself to a solution, then it could lead to suicide because it, it would mean that I... It would just be too violent to be kind of um, confronted so openly with the fact that there was no solution and that I was always going to be this way, you know? Because in the back of my mind, I thought I'm going to end up overdosed or um, killing myself, you know? And that kind of quote-unquote knowledge was just this growing darkness in my
0: life, you know? And you know, my feeling about... Drug experiences being called spiritual, I think what a spiritual experience and an eye-opening drug experience share in common is that your perception changes. But I think that is the limit of the benefit of a singular drug experience is, yes, your perception has been changed. You may see the world differently from then on, but it's not really sp- spiritual um, because, to me, spirituality, it, it, to me, it is about connecting more deeply to to other human beings in a way that is practical, that is helping other people, asking for help from other people. And, you know, it's almost like to me it goes one level beyond your perception being changed. It, it, It makes the world a better place and being high has never made the world necessarily in and of itself a better place. The perception changing may lead to the Beatles albums becoming greater and being more about, you know, love or, or, or whatever. But, um, yeah, that's kind of my, my thought on that. And I know some people may disagree, but
1: no, I actually agree. I think it's, uh, you know, spirituality is having access to these things and drugs don't give you access. They just shoot you into it and then you shoot back down to earth. And if anything, you know you, you you don't have any of the ways to get there and to get back
0: it's not real travel you know yeah to me it's like the difference between a, a crash diet and uh changing your lifestyle your, totally. your eating lifestyle mm-hmm. you
1: know i always wondered when i had those panic attacks what's the opposite of this kind of weird dark ego death place cuz you know when buddhists talk about um when buddhists talk about that kind of stuff they talk about it in a very positive way. And I was like, when do I get that side of the coin? You know, it's just all darkness for me. And um in my therapist's office, um, I remember we were going into these f- feelings, you know, these really, really sad feelings that I thought if I went into, I would die. I literally felt my life was threatened by this sadness. And she said, why don't we just go into them? I just let myself go deeper and deeper into this just absolutely overwhelming and intense sadness. And then I had the experience of um, something just opening like a a kind of it was like the bottom gave out and I had what I can only describe as a just beautiful spiritual experience it was myself was not really there and there was no separation between anything everything was totally gonna be fine it always had been fine and time had nothing to do with it and it was like this landscape that was not visual it was very crystalline and so relaxing and my therapist did not know what to do with me at all because I was just like I was just like it's so beautiful. That's I just kept saying that. It's so beautiful. And I just felt very profoundly that it's going to be all right, you know? That it always has been all right and it's, it's just it, and that gave me access actually to um kind of going a little deeper uh, in in that area and ch- probably save my life, you know? Because um it's for me, you know, if I don't have that element in my life, I, I, it's not worth living sober, you know? It's just not worth living sober. So that really... That's awesome. It was a, such a gift, you know, from nowhere, from nowhere. Well, actually, from accepting my feelings and saying it's okay to feel this way. And it's not going to kill me, you know?
0: And then maybe one day you'll find out who fucked you when you were an infant.
1: <laughs> I can't wait.
0: Maybe if I write enough about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's go to some fears and loves. Cool. I love that I can make jokes like that and there's nobody that can tell me to not do that
1: i mean those make my day when i listen to the podcast but the only reason i'm not telling you right now that you shouldn't say that is because you told me before the interview if you fucking contradict me (laughs) i will fucking (laughs) break both of your legs i'm like a skinny hipster and you're a hockey player you told me dude i will fucking shatter i will shatter you i
0: will break you (laughs) uh Let's do fears. I'm going to be reading the fears of a person in the forum uh, who calls themselves uh, hypomanic rocker. I think that's what it says. The print is very small. Hypomanic rocker. I think that's what it says. Cool. Uh, I'm going to repeat that a third time. Hypomanic rocker. I think that's what it says. <laughs> uh <laughs> And they say, I fear that the jowly, puffy, old person I glimpse in my iPhone camera when it's switched the wrong way is what I really look like. <laughs>
1: That's great. I love that. And I love that he calls it the wrong way. Yeah. <laughs> Pointed to him as just the wrong way. <laughs> sure. um, I fear my penis is getting smaller over time and it soon won't be able to achieve full erection.
0: That's awesome. <laughs> I fear that in my youth, I won love from others through my looks, and now that I'm getting older and fatter, no one will love me or respect me. Wow.
1: I fear I'm going bald and my head is misshapen, so I won't look good as a bald person.
0: I fear that my husband will leave me because we have not had sex in three years. Oh, that's heavy. Um, I fear that everyone can sense I'm poisonous and trying too hard socially. I fear that since my mother passed away, I will never be truly loved unconditionally by anyone ever again. All that breaks my heart. Yeah. Um, I fear I'm in a manic episode and don't even know it. I fear that people secretly feel sorry for me and laugh at my expense at the same time. That's a really common one. A lot of people share that in the shame and secret survey. Absolutely.
1: Um, I fear I'm too meek
0: or too brutal and rarely act appropriately. I fear that I'm not the person I present myself as to the world. Um, I feel I'm kidding myself
1: about. I fear, not I feel. I fear I'm kidding myself about my writing and anyone in the literary sphere will look down on me.
0: I fear I will never truly know myself.
1: I fear the end of the world is coming and I'll never achieve creative meaning because all
0: meaning is being lost. Have you ever read uh, From the Slush Pile? Have you, you ever know? heard of that? it's you know editors get all kinds of submissions of literary stuff and one of them or many of them I'm not sure um take excerpts of the very worst ones and release them sometimes and you know i i don't like to laugh completely at other people but they chose to submit their bad writing and they're fucking hilarious how just cliche or trite or awfully worded uh they are uh, do a search for uh from the slush pile I, I think you can probably find it online uh i fear i will never have normal friendships again and then i'm not worthy of friendship even though i know i am insulating myself from overtures anyhow mm-hmm. and then she's got one left one uh, left so let's uh let's do one more each
1: oh, okay well I, I'm i'm gonna pick a good one then um Uh, I fear that I've never been happy and don't even know it because I don't have the capacity for happiness.
0: And her last one is, I fear my husband will tire of my depression and that I should hide them from him. uh, Oh, my depressions. And that I should hide them from him as often as I can. Mm. I would imagine that's a common one for... um, I do worry sometimes about tiring my wife out, but uh, she's hung in there this long. No reason to believe uh, she's going to bail on me anytime soon. Uh, to loves, sure. I'm going to be reading loves of uh, someone from the forum called Theme Rising, or uh, I'm sorry, Thane Thane Rising. For some reason, the name of the person on the forum is in like a, a prescription bottle size uh, print but the rest of it is in a larger print I that's why, why I, always... I
1: always wondered why you can't read the name of the people on the podcast yeah. yeah
0: i mean look at look at that is it just is it just me or um yeah so no names, that is their names like in blue that is small really really small maybe you
1: could get like one of those old people laptops <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh. <laughs> They write, since I didn't tell much about myself in the intro post, uh, I'll list some of the things off the top of my head that rub me the right way. I love when the chord progression in a song gives you chills every time it enters your ears. Oh, I feel that way, too. Hmm. I love that. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I love slowly falling asleep in
1: the middle of the day, warm in the backseat of a car or on a sofa, and allowing myself the pleasure
0: of silence and oblivion. I like that. I love looking back on old text messages where people said exactly what I wanted them to say to me without any soliciting. (laughs) Well, that's so appropriate for what we were talking about.
1: Totally. I love reading a book through the night, unable to put it down because it's so beautiful. Weeping, finding meaning in that moment as a human being, and concurrently experiencing intense joy and sadness.
0: That's great. I love when the night ends before the conversation does.
1: Hmm. Um, I love after a refreshing shower and having dressed, getting unexpectedly
0: horny and initiating sex. Uh, I love a big bowl of pasta with a gratuitous amount of garlic in it. Actually, scratch that. I love a big bowl of garlic with some (laughs) pasta on the side.
1: I love leaving a support group um, and uh, a support group meeting and feeling light and joyous and free and putting my arm over people as a sign of affection and really meaning it with no strings attached.
0: Uh, I want to second that one as deeply as I ever, ever have. Um, I love listening to a song over and over again and each time focusing on a different element of the song and experiencing it from every conceivable perspective.
1: Hmm. I love drinking a large amount of very good coffee and feeling intense joy and drive and writing something
0: raw and honest. Yeah. (laughs) I love when people's favorite part of the night uh, was the jokes I told. (laughs)
1: i really relate to this person oh man um i love unexpectedly experiencing
0: inner silence with no apparent source i love reading something i wrote years ago and still enjoying it as much as i did the day i wrote it um i love touching my girlfriend's
1: cold ears especially on a hot day
0: oh that's a great one that's so (laughs) obscure uh he's got one left or she's got one left Uh, I love when people straight up tell me that they've been thinking about me. I'm always pessimistic when it comes to who cares about me. So when someone openly says that I've been on their mind, it warms me. Give me two more.
1: Okay, I do want to give two more. Uh, I love on my birthday telling myself happy birthday alone and spending the day trying to do things to make others feel special.
0: That's great.
1: Yeah, it's... it's changed my birthdays. Like I fucking hate birthdays normally, because <laughs> I'm all day just like when am, when are people gonna treat me super well, and then they treat me super well and I feel guilty. <laughs> <laughs> and I love realizing I'm capable of something I didn't think I was capable of, and noticing my own progress.
0: Well, that's a, I always say it, but that's a great one to to end on. I think it's so fitting with the arc of your story and in your life and uh i never get tired of seeing people recover and see uh see the light um you know whatever that light may be it's beautiful so uh, julian thank you so much oh thank you man i really really enjoyed talking to uh to him I, there's nothing like just having a good laugh and a deep conversation with somebody that you um that you barely know but as you talk you feel like you've known that person a lot a lot longer i just i never get tired of that that um uh, just love it. Before we get to these surveys, I want to remind you guys there's a couple of different ways to support the show. You can go to... Oh, also, um, I'm going to put a link up on the site um, to a novel that uh, that Julian has. And, uh shit, the name of it escapes me right now. I think it might be called um, One Red Heron or something with a red heron. Um, but I'll put that link on the on the website. And so, if you want to go support him, you can either buy it through the link, or you can um, do a pay-as-you-like um, ebook dealy. Before I get to the surveys, I want to remind you a couple of different ways you can support the show. You can go to the website mentalpod.com, make either a one-time PayPal donation or my favorite um become a recurring monthly donor for as little as 5 bucks a month. It's super easy to set up and it means the world to me. Um, you can also shop at Amazon through our search portal. That way they'll give us a couple of nickels, doesn't cost you anything. You can buy um on our website, you can buy coffee mugs, t-shirts. We have women's sizes. Um, and, uh, there's something else. I always forget. There's always something. You can support us non-financially by going to iTunes, writing something nice, giving us a good rating or spreading the word through social media. That really, really helps. Um, this first survey is filled out by, uh, Chell or Shell. Not sure how uh, she pronounces it. She is, um, bisexual in her twenties, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, um, never been sexually abused, uh, or physically abused, but has been emotionally abused. I thought it was completely normal to cry myself to sleep every night because my brother would criticize and belittle me on a daily basis. I didn't know what other functioning families, I didn't know that other functioning families did not scold the weakest member of the family. I thought that I deserved it because I was too scared to stand up for myself any positive experiences with the abusers. I think I will always be the little sister that wants her brother to like her, so even though our relationship has gotten better, I know that I'm not being myself around him. Darkest thoughts. I daydream about my suicide in a romantic way. It's nothing that I would do, but it gets me through the day thinking about a potential dramatic way to end my life. Darkest secrets. I burn myself and think of it frequently. I feel too much Uh, A lot of the time, and it's easy for me to turn that emotional pain into physical pain when I burn myself. Um, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I've never been with a girl sexually, but I fantasize about it frequently. And sharing it makes me feel like it could be more than just a fantasy one day. What, if anything, do you wish for? I just wish I could be myself around my family. Um, you shared these things with others? I have not because I can't help but think that my problems are very tiny and I don't want to waste others' time telling them. Um, you know what I think about that. Talk about it. How do you feel after writing these things down? Um, I've never openly expressed my feelings to anyone, so I feel like I've made a tiny bit of progress answering these questions. Thank you for that, Shell. This is an awfulsome moment, and I want to high-five you guys for um, giving us a lot of awfulsome moments and a couple of happy moments for, uh, for this week. This is filled up by Liz, and she writes, My father is the eldest of four children and has three younger sisters. They're all a little wacky, and two of the three of them have had problems with pills, other drugs, and alcohol. I know we shouldn't laugh at them, but sometimes they are just too ridiculous not to. One Christmas Eve, we were all gathered at my conservative Christian grandparents' house to have dinner and open gifts. The looniest of the aunts showed up about two hours late and appeared to be under the influence of some combination of pills and alcohol. After stumbling around and talking nonsense for what seemed like an hour, she finally sat down next to my brother-in-law. My sisters and I were sitting on the couch opposite of them and watching to see what she was going to do next. We couldn't hear what she was saying to him, but out of nowhere, she goes in to kiss my brother-in-law. He turns his head to avoid the kiss. Without missing a beat, she licks his ear in front of the whole family. My sisters and I tried not to laugh, but we couldn't take it. The three of us burst out laughing as the rest of the family scowled at us for being inappropriate. It was and continues to be one of the funniest things I have ever seen. My brother-in-law tends to disagree. (laughs) thank you for that uh this is a shouldn't feel this way survey filled out by um a girl who calls herself uh katla it looks like um and uh she's a transgendered uh female uh she's gay she's in her 30s what would you like people to say about your your funeral nothing there wouldn't be anyone there uh how does that make you feel tired um how does writing that make you feel? Tired. If you had a time machine, how would you use it? Assuming uh it is only history that cannot be changed, I would go forward in time uh to where I know no one no one can say my life where no one where I know no one and uh start my life over from then. Sorry that took me so long to to read. There's a word that was misspelled and I'm dumb. Uh, things you, do you feel that you uh, tell yourself you shouldn't feel I'm supposed to feel happy about my kids successes but I don't I feel tired how does writing that make you feel tired do you think you're abnormal for feeling what you do yes would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better about yourself not likely well we're sending you a hug and um, I think a lot of people feel way more tired than they than they let on Um, this is an awful moment filled out by a guy who calls himself utter carnage. And he writes, um, finally getting therapy for my many problems and constantly trying to do things to make me feel less of a loser about it. When therapists, uh, when my therapist would leave the room, fun would start. I would turn her modern art upside down. It stayed that way for months. I changed her mouse and keyboard and rearranged her alphabetical books. It's awesome. I think it depends probably on how she uh, she handled it. Uh, this is from the Shouldn't Feel This Way survey, filled out by a guy who calls himself Little Mac. And he is straight. He's 25, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Um, what would you like people to say about your your funeral? I don't expect many people at my funeral. I just hope that the few people in my life I care about are left with something positive from me. How does writing that make you feel? Fine. It makes me realize I'm not self-centered, just mentally ill. If you had a time machine, how would you use it? At the moment, I would like to travel back and see what I was like as a really small kid, like five years old. See what I was like before so much mental illness took hold and changed me so profoundly that I can't even remember how, quote, normal people do things. I'm supposed to feel good when people want to hug me, but I don't. I feel violated because they know how uncomfortable it makes me. But still, every time they go and hug me because it's what they want to do. I don't understand what the point of it is. They're not expressing affection to me or for me because it makes my stomach sick. Um, uh, makes my skin crawl. Makes me just itch to take off all those clothes and take a shower, and they know that it bothers me so profoundly, so why do they hug me? For their own benefit is all I can assume, and for someone to want to touch me that badly and not caring about the harm it causes just makes me feel uh, what I felt from my abusers. I'm supposed to feel happy about getting an interview, but every time I just fear getting worse again, like it always happens. I've overcome so much, but part of that. Has been the result of me knowing my physical and mental limitations. Every period of work I've had ends disastrously. Three years in an office ending in months in bed. Two years at a retail store ending in me unstable, unable to set foot in the vicinity because of awful feelings. I want to work. I want to be a normal citizen. I enjoy customer service. Weird, I'm sure, but I love analyzing situations and responding and being nice, and I love that same challenge with selling. I also love data entry and technical work. I can find that monotony very fulfilling and enjoyable. I like these things. They give me happiness, but it's simply too much. My brain can't handle that much. It's always thinking, never stopping, and just the thoughts from OCD alone are exhausting without having to do things too. Working only piles on more and more each day. It's like every day that's over, I will have 30 hours of metal processing to do in the 24-hour day. So what happens is I start having a backlog, one that builds and builds. It takes so much for me to be able to process past my compulsions. I need the time and peace to be able to overcome them. Just doing laundry, cooking, cleaning, showering fills up my limit for the day because of how hard I have to think, how much time I need to try to handle these things healthily and get past the things that bother me. If I don't have the time to process them, I end up giving into more compulsions and also not being able to address the problems at their core, which makes me feel that feeling of anxiety and discomfort and shame, and it just grows uncontrolled. The problems at the core of my OCD are like a wild plant, and it constantly needs trimming. Just a day of letting that slip lets it advance. It is a constant struggle. How does it make you feel to write your feelings out? A little better. I started writing because of something happening that made me feel really badly about myself and my OCD. It's nice to write out my feelings and remind myself that I am a good person inside. Something I am only recently able to see and say. I just wish others would see that I'm not a loser or weak or broken. I want to recommend a book that I just started reading too um, called Healing the Shame that Binds. And it's by... Uh, John Bradshaw, and uh, I'm only 10% into it, and I'm highlighting. I might as well just dip it in a yellow highlighter because it's it's about that shame at our core that we believe um, that we are inherently bad. Uh, Do you think you're abnormal for feeling what you do? I know not everybody feels these things, but I'm sure... Plenty of people do also, especially from listening to your podcast. Even if there aren't many with my unique cocktail of neuroses, I know all the ingredients can be found somewhere in someone else. Would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better about yourself? It does, yeah. I enjoy this podcast so much for that. It amazes me how hearing someone else fighting, too, makes me want to fight harder, even when they have completely different problems, and even if they're in a completely different place in their journey. It has helped me so much in loving myself. Hearing others so openly t- openly talk about their problems helps me not only honestly love myself more, but to be more honest with my feelings, even when that openness results in rejection. Wow, that's huge. And um, thank you for the nice comments. And, um, you know, when you guys give me feedback about the show, uh, how the show helps you, um, I just, I-, I love hearing it. And um, thank you for those of you that take the time to to share that stuff i really appreciate it um because i could not do this show in a vacuum um what No, oh, that was it that was it for his survey well mac um we are sending you a hug buddy thank you for that really detailed uh descriptive survey this is an awful moment filled out by a 15 year old girl who calls herself i don't even know what to call myself And uh, her awfulsome moment, the moment when I finally told my mom that I was a lesbian. She looked ever so disappointed. Not at the fact that I'm gay, just that she wasn't getting any grandkids anytime soon. That night, I heard her telling my dad about it, and he just told her, "Hun, at least she won't be coming home pregnant. Good night. I was speechless. Thank you for that. Um... This is a rarely filled out uh, survey. Uh, and I say this every time I read one of these, but this was uh, the Young Male Abused by Older Female survey. And uh, this guy's name is uh, The Real Herald. And you'll understand why he calls himself that as we get into this. He is straight. Uh, well, he says mostly straight except for an attraction to 55 uh, plus white men. Uh, he's in his 30s. And he writes, um, I had a nine year off and on sexual relationship with a woman that began when I was 16 and she was 70. We met at church. Yay, Jesus. Uh, she was my first sexual experience, and we were in love. I was 16, and she was 70. We knew it wasn't normal, but we made each other very happy. Looking back, though, I wonder if I missed an opportunity to become socialized like other people my age. But my home but my home life was an emotional desert, and I would have died of thirst if not for her. Um, remembering these things, what feelings come up. Pride that I was in such an amazing and idiosyncratic relationship. We were like the real-life version of the movie Harold and Maude, which is a brilliant movie, by the way, by the great late Al Ashby. Um, She died four years ago, and though I am married now, I still miss her terribly. There was a little bit of shame, too, but it's eclipsed by the feelings of wonder and beauty sprung by my first love. Do you feel any damage was done? Um, Looking back, I'm surprised she acquiesced to our relationship because she was normally so sensible. I pursued her, but I wonder if she had a responsibility to do something more for me than let herself fall in love with me. She was the person to first encourage me to go to counseling. I've told my current wife, who is also older than me, but not by that much, uh, that one day I would like to enter into a mutual sexual relationship with an older couple. She's not totally crazy about the idea, but she doesn't mind hearing my fantasies. I think it could come true if the circumstances were right. Well, I'm sending you uh, sending you a big hug. <laughs> Any comments to make the podcast better? Spend more time rubbing your nipples and telling us about it while you read these surveys. Um haven't touched the nipples in about uh, three, four weeks, and um, I wonder if they're lonely. I wonder if they're feeling left out. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by um, a woman who calls herself Farm to Table, and Farm is P H A R M. She's in her twenties. Uh, my great grandmother was i diag- am sorry, my grandmother was diagnosed with breast cancer in her late seventies. After, the, I wonder if that was the world the woman from the other. Uh, hmm. I couldn't think of the word survey. Uh, after the tumor was removed, uh, the doctor was explaining to my grandmother that during the surgery they had to remove her nipple. Uh, he stated, we can give you a new one through reconstructive surgery. And my grandmother replied, no thanks. I think my nipple days are behind me. She was an awesome lady. She sounds like it. Uh, this is also from the Shouldn't Feel This Way survey. This was filled out by A guy who calls himself Tinson, he's straight, is in in his 30s, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. What would you like people to say about you at your funeral? It doesn't matter. The fact that they're there to say anything at least means that I didn't just end up alienating everyone who would possibly care about me enough to attend. How does writing that make you feel? I don't really feel anything. Death is not something I particularly worry about. If you had a time machine, how would you use it? I want to say that I'd use it to go back to the seminal moments of history, to solve unsolved mysteries, to observe the great prophets as they taught that sort of thing. But to be honest, I'd probably go back to watch my sister fuck her high school boyfriend, since I know that's the only way I can possibly fulfill my three greatest sexual fantasies, underage girls, voyeurism, and incest. Um, That's the only way I could possibly fulfill them without actually hurting anyone. Um, Please write as many of these as you feel. I'm supposed to feel blank about blank. I'm supposed to feel protective and supportive about my sister, but I don't. I feel pure, unadulterated lust. I'm supposed to feel sympathy and anger about the sexual abuse she suffered as a child, but I don't. I feel turned on and jealous because they were able to take what I could never allow myself to have. Um, Well, you know, I can tell you that if you had taken that innocence from her instead of obsessing about the fantasy that you didn't get to explore you would be obsessing about having taken that from her and beating yourself up about it um so i think if you're going to be stuck with something to obsess about you're stuck with um the the lesser of the two painful obsessions um How does it make you feel to write your feelings out? I feel disgusted with myself for not being able to control it, but just the thought of it makes me hard. I would never want to abuse anyone, but just knowing that my sister is a sexual being, even if that sexual activity was clearly abusive while she was still a child, turns me on in ways that nothing else can. You think you're abnormal for feeling what you do. I don't feel the thoughts themselves are abnormal, but I worry that the intensity in which I feel them is. I have no trouble finding other girls attractive, but I have never wanted to have sex with anyone as bad as I want to have sex with my sister. And I'm constantly fighting disappointment in myself for not having experimented with her sexually while we were both still young enough. Um, quote, not to know any better. I have long since come to terms with the fact that I can't really control what turns me on. I know I'm not a monster for thinking this, but I also know that if others found out about my fantasies, they would treat me as one um, because of the stigmas associated with child molestation and incest abuse. I constantly worry that I, that if I ever have a daughter, I would feel these same thoughts towards her and end up not being able to control myself. Would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better about yourself? Yes and no. There's no shortage of news stories about men who find underage girls and family members sexually attractive, ending in abuse, rape, and trauma. What would make me feel better about myself would be knowing that any of these stories could ever have, if not a happy ending, at least an ending that doesn't just cause pain for everyone involved. Um, yeah, and uh, that's uh, that's it for for his survey. Well, thank you for pouring your heart out in that. And um, I encourage you maybe to to go to the forum and and post um, about that. You can post there anonymously. And um, I think you might be able to find some people to connect to and to, to feel less alone um, in your feelings. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Omniel. And she is in her 50s. And her awfulsome moment, my mom had Alzheimer's and I was at the nursing home getting ready to take her into the bathroom to have her go and to change her diaper. As I was trying to bring her in so I could get her situated on the toilet, she stopped, put her hand in the back of her pants, pulled out a solid piece of poop, and put it on the vanity like a present. I think she was trying to show me she'd already gone. That's pretty awfulsome. This is a happy moment filled out by Matt, and he's in his 30s, and he writes, um, and he also write, wrote some nice stuff uh, to make me feel less alone about uh, my uh, my genitalia, which I've shared on the, on the podcast, but I, um, I don't want to talk about that again. Not out of embarrassment, I just feel like I've talked about it too much. Anyway, his happy moment. When a friend of mine and myself would hang out every weekend, uh, he had bunk beds and we would lay there one above and one below talking about all the girls we liked that we had no chance of sleeping with, among other things. It was one of those simple periods growing up that I sometimes go back to when life gets stressful and it never fails to cheer me up. I think these are my favorite happy moments or these ones that are just sublime like that where where we're connected um, to people. Um, This is a happy moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Scott. And uh he writes when my roommate's dog runs up to me before anyone else, reminding me that there is one thing that I provided uh, for fully that I don't disappoint and that prefers me. I know she doesn't have any feelings or deep thoughts; I know that I am simply a source for exercise and food, and am the pack leader, but that's more than enough on the worst days, It reminds me that despite my numerous handicaps and failures and regrets that there is one animal' who life, one animal whose life I know I positively impact. I realize it's a job even a kid can do, but right now, it's what I have to take pride in. Thank you for that. And then uh, the last survey is a, a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Onward and Upward. And she writes, I just got out of a horrid relationship, uprooted my life, quit my job, sold my house, and moved back to Chicago, my hometown, to reboot three years ago I was taking a walk to meet a friend and as I was passing all these beautiful brownstones and flowers I just started to cry because I was so happy and grateful to be in that moment it's amazing how quickly and drastically you can change your life finally some peace well thank you for sharing that and thank you guys for uh for being a part of this thing and um filling out the surveys and being monthly donors and one-time donors and transcribing episodes and sharing your emails with me and, um, all the other, you know, writing guest blogs, posting in the forum, um, all the other stuff that, uh, that you do to support it. It, um, it really, when I'm having a tough day, it really helps me feel, feel less alone and uh, helps me, helps me get out of bed. So I appreciate it. And I, I hope if you're listening, um, that you know that you are uh, you're most definitely not alone and that there's hope if you're willing to get out of your comfort zone and uh, reach out for help. It, uh, it saved my life and it can it can save yours too. And uh, thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful in, in some weird is bizarrely way. Beautifully Everybody I know some weird is bizarrely way. beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.